Welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, chatting to some of the UK's leading business professionals, sharing tips, insights, and advice on how to create amazing customer experiences whilst building bigger, better, and more profitable businesses as a result. What can you do in your business today and in the years to come to truly delight your clients? What exceptional experiences can you give them to take away and cherish? How can you delight the most important person in the world? Satisfaction makes you one of many. Delighting clients makes you the only one. And you can't be just one. You have to be the only one. Hello and welcome to the Only One Business Show with me, your host, James Nathan, and I have a stunning guest today for you and I think you're going to really enjoy meeting him. He's the author of the book, The Gift of Struggle, a book about leadership and the life-changing lessons we learn through our struggles. He's also the co-founder and president of Populous Group. With a passion for building strong culture and communities through trust and storytelling, his leadership style is about empowerment, connections, and ensuring everybody has the opportunity to succeed. He grew up in a big family with parents who emigrated to America um, without very much, which isn't an uncommon story, but the leadership style and culture, company culture that it is inspired certainly is. The belief that everyone deserves the opportunity to succeed is at the core of his philosophy in business and in life. A proud army veteran currently living in the very beautiful Portland, Oregon with his wife and three children, please welcome Bobby Herrera. Bobby, hi, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm I'm blessed. I was looking forward to connecting with you, James. Well, I'm delighted you've been able to take the time, Bobby. Thanks so much. And you're in Portland. You, you mentioned to me you haven't been there long. How's how's the transformation to uh, Oregon life been? Well, I think I mentioned it, you know, offline a while ago. We should have we should have come out here a long time ago. It's beautiful. It's uh, everything you hear about Portland is true. And you, your parents came to the, to America. When was that? When did they when did they immigrate? Yeah, my dad's story uh, brought him to. Uh, the U.S. in 1964, and I joined the tribe of 13 children a few years later. Wow! So I was the first one born in the United States. I didn't speak a lick of English until I was seven. Right. And uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time to you know have the family journey start in the U.S. So where were they from? Yeah, from uh, northern Mexico. Uh, right. The, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, from the uh, thirteen kids. My word, that's a that's a really expensive Christmas, isn't it? Well, and you know, my wife uh, is still trying to break me from uh, eating with my elbows on the table, and I think it's just hardwired. I've been protecting my food since I was a, a little fella. <laughs> I can imagine if your if your well if if your brothers and sisters ate anything like my brother did, uh, you would want to protect that as well. And so you uh, you, you grew up in this big big family with with uh, your, your your folks. And so what what did your dad do? What was his story? Well, so my dad was a bracero from Mexico, James. And right, you know, uh, for those of your listeners that aren't familiar, that was an agreement between the U.S. and Mexico that started during the World War era. And basically, right. it was temporary workers from Mexico that would come to the U.S. and offset the labor shortage while the U.S. men were off fighting in the war. And right. my dad was selected as a bracero in 1954. In the year that he was selected, there were 300,000 men from Mexico amongst mm-hmm. millions that stood in these lines 
for the opportunity to come to the U.S. and work. And, you know, my dad had stood in line for nine years trying to get an opportunity to become a Bracero. And wow. he finally was selected. And, you know, can you imagine the resilience and the courage that it took to never give up? And, you know, I'm so grateful for the fact that he never gave up. And he did that for 10 years, James, from 1954 to 1964. And, you know, that, that part of his story came at a significant sacrifice. You know, you and I were talking about our kids a little before the uh, recording and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he would leave the family for 10, 11 months at a time and, you know, he'd send money back home. And, you know, as a family story goes, he would, you know, he'd leave, he'd come back, he'd meet the kid that he made before he left, stick around long enough to make another one, do another, (laughs) you know, uh, season as a bracero and then he'd come back you know, I can barely stay away from my coconuts for two, three days. And I can only imagine yeah. the pain that he felt as a father. Cause you know, in the end, that's what it's all about. Well, but what, what, a, what, you know, you, if I think about that and I think, goodness me, you know, people talk about having a hard time these days, but they don't know what they're talking about when a man can do such a, well, a wonderful thing for his family and such a difficult thing for himself. Well, um, and, you know, it's really quite impressive. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, uh, I think most most men out there, at least the ones that whose frontal lobe is fully developed, would would readily admit admit that my mom probably had the harder job. She was at back at home raising all those children, and yeah, you know, so yeah, you know, they both made significant sacrifices for for that. And you know, in 1964, when the program ended, uh, my dad had met a sheep rancher from Eastern New Mexico here in the U.S., and mm-hmm. that rancher had told my dad that. Hey, if this program ends, just come knocking on my door and I'll give you an opportunity. And a few months after it ended in 1964, my dad did just that. And, you know, that kind rancher named Henry kept his word. And that was the beginning of our family story in the U.S. And I'm grateful for uh, my man, my dad meeting that kind man that, you know, held true to his promise. And I, uh, at the, you know, it forever changed my family story. Well, what a fabulous man! He, he is he still with us? No, he's uh, I, you know I, I I him and my dad I think are both having pints at the at the beer in heaven where they at the bar in heaven <laughs> where they serve free beer. At least that's that's what I'm going to tell myself. Well, that sounds like a good place to be. I just uh, I'll do that when the time's right. I don't want to do that too soon. But that that journey, um, you know, growing up with the, with the, with the distant dad and, and then, uh, then moving from one country to another, hardly speaking the language must've been a hell of a thing for all of you. You know, when you're going through it, um, your narrative's different than when you reflect back on it. And, mm-hmm. you know, after, after I joined the family and a couple of other younger siblings joined the, you know, we were a migrant farm working family, which, mm-hmm in English means that we were part of what is often called the invisible workforce in the United States. And my my family, my dad would pull all the kids out of school in April and we would begin our journey as a migrant farm working family. And so we would go to the state of Colorado and we would work in the onion fields. And then we would go Mm -hmm. to Wyoming, work in the sugar beets. We would go to Idaho and we would pick potatoes and pears and a few months later, we would make our way back down all the way to our home state in New Mexico. And that's how I grew up six months out of the year, 
you know, following my family around in the fields, eventually becoming part of that. And, you know, I just, I grew up working in the fields, you know, often 10 hours a day, six days a week. And, you mm-hmm. know, at times growing up, I thought everybody did that, James. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I end up, you know, uh, I, I had some very fortunate opportunities. I had a act of kindness. It changed my life when I was 17. And, you know, uh, I just started looking at my life differently uh, in those late, later teen years. Tell us about that act of kindness then. What what happened? Well, it's actually the first chapter of the book uh, in The Gift of Struggle, uh, but it's uh-huh. actually my one of my marker stories. Um, so my brother and I, uh, I was 17, and we were on a return trip home from a basketball game. And along the way, the team stopped for dinner. Mm-hmm. Everyone unloaded off the bus, except for me and my brother, Ed. You know, being part of this big tribe, we were, uh, you know, very modest upbringing. We were at a mm-hmm. point in time where we, we couldn't play sports and afford dinner. <clears throat> right. So a few moments after the team unloads, one of the dads to the other player steps on board the bus. And he teased me a little bit, James, because Ed had outscored me that night. He was a better basketball right. player than I was. <laughs> And then he said something to me that I will always remember. Bobby, it would make me very happy if you would allow me to buy you boys dinner. Nobody else has to know. All you wow. have to do to thank me is do the same thing for another great kid just like you on this bus. And James, I had this wave of gratitude come over me that it's still hard for me to explain that feeling to this day. Mm-hmm. And I remember stepping off that bus And I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. You know, struggle had been the only consistent theme in my family story. I wanted off that bus more than you know. And even though I didn't know what I was going to do, after that kind act, I knew why. I would somehow, some way, figure out a way to create something that would allow me to pay forward that kind act to other kids like me who were born on the wrong side of the opportunity divide. What a fabulous thing. And, you know, I felt nine foot tall that evening, mm-hmm. James. I felt like nothing could stop me. And, you know, that moment, it gave me identity. It gave me purpose. It showed me that <clears throat> I too could somehow, some way make a difference in someone else's life. And I, uh, it became the invisible force that drove me and it fueled me, you know, later on in life when I started my entrepreneurial journey and and started my company, Populous Group. So tell me about Populous Group, because it's quite a special business, isn't it? Well, I'm very fortunate. I'm blessed. You know, Populous Group, it's Latin for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're a community of passionate, egoless climbers building something bigger than ourselves, and that is bringing that bus story to life to help kids and, you know, military veterans. That's, that's what drives us. Uh, and we're very passionate about the culture that we fiercely protect that I've been fortunate to build with them. But the problem we solve for the world is pretty simple. You know, we, there's a raging war for talent out there mm-hmm. and we help uh, organizations better manage their non-permanent workforce. Right. So there's an interesting irony there. So, you know, my dad, he was a temporary worker from Mexico. And it's interesting now that the industry that I serve is helping organizations better manage their temporary workers. So I have a very deep personal connection to making sure that we 
serve these people who, in my eyes, they're just like my dad and mom were trying to do something better for their families. And that's embedded into the way that we serve, into the way that we give. And I tell those stories. Everyone in populist group understands those stories. And Mm -hmm. it, uh, it gives us meaning when we serve those that are, you know, that trust us. Isn't it a, a, a really interesting sort of circle of fate that you end up doing, doing what you're doing? I don't, I don't believe in many forces in life, but I, I do think that there is, there is something very special when, when that sort of thing happens. So that's that bus story, the story of that very kind man on the bus and, and, and populace. How has that transformed your, your journey with that company? Uh, well, I appreciate that question for two reasons. One, uh, that bus story was raging like an inferno inside of me. And the, the first reason I appreciate your question is that bus story is also part of one of the biggest leadership mistakes that I made. Right. And let me tell you what that is. It took almost 10 years after I started my company for me to develop the courage to tell that story. Isn't that crazy? It's raging like an inferno inside of me. Mm-hmm. It was the moment that gave me purpose, identity. And you know, I write about that in the book on the narrative that I was telling myself that nobody needed to hear it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it, I mean, it was a big point of vulnerability for me. And when I finally developed the courage to tell that story, it changed everything for us. And you know, another reason that I appreciate your question is uh, it's been a big part of how it shaped my leadership philosophy because, uh, you know, there's a backstory that I think is important. Mm-hmm. You know, that gentleman that stepped on board the bus, James, yeah. he was a very successful businessman in the community. Right. And the narrative that I told myself as a 17 year old kid is that, you know, people like him, they don't, they don't see kids like me, but with one simple act of kindness. Not only did he show me that I was wrong, but he taught me that one of the single most important parts of leadership is seeing and encouraging potential. Mm -hmm. That was the first time in my life that I felt seen and it changed everything for me. And that experience has shaped my leadership philosophy around how I reframe my struggles and what I went through and how that applies to you know, leadership and serving others. And, you know, I know service is a big passion of yours and, you know, it has to stem from someplace meaningful. Yeah. And that, that bus story has been, been the marker for me. It's interesting when you mentioned that he was a very successful person. I know I, I tell a lot of stories as, as you do, and and one of them is is a, a kind of how I ended up in business in the first place, or how I ended up in 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 the sales environment, and and part of that was was trying to work out what made successful people one person more successful than another, um, and and how they how they went, but not just what they did, but how they thought about it. And one of the things that I did is a as a, a young guy was was just start to ask to ask to buy beers for people or buy them a coffee or ask them if I could take them out for lunch and and just to just find out what it was that made made them so special and um, one of the things I discovered was not only were they um, extremely generous with their time but they were always extremely generous with their knowledge they were very happy to help and to give and I think that's something that stuck with me um, you know our, our mutual friend Bob Berg talks a lot about about giving, but not giving to receive, 
giving to give and that you know that that what goes around comes around i think it's it's quite interesting when i hear stories like that bus story and i think you know what it's it doesn't surprise me in any way it delights me but it doesn't surprise me that that person was a successful business person yeah he was a very kind he is a very kind humble man i um uh you know a few years back he uh you know i i realized i'd never picked up the phone and called him and uh, I'm not sure why I hadn't, and it was about 15 years into my company's journey. Mm-hmm. We just turned 17, so ironically, now my company populist group is the same age that I was when he stepped on board that bus. <laughs> and um, you know, a few years back, I picked up the phone and I called him, and I told him the bus story. I told him the impact it had on me, and how I have been fortunate and very grateful to you know pay forward that kind of act. To, other kids who, you know, feel like me on that bus. And it was a real special moment for us, James. And yeah, a few days later, I got a note from him. Uh-huh. And in that note, he says, you know, he says, you know, Bobby, thank you so much for calling me and telling me the bus story. I don't mind admitting the many tears that I shed during and after that call. You made me feel like my life had mattered. Did he remember? Did he remember meeting you on the bus? He, he did remember. Right. He did remember, but he had no idea how that moment had become the invisible force that drove me to build something that is, uh, you know, very fortunately a pretty unique community and uh, a given community of great people. That uh, I'm just, you know, God's given me more than I deserve, and I, you know, I'd like to think that I would have figured it out on my own, mm-hmm. James. But that's not a real comfortable thought for me. Right. And I'm real open about that because, you know, again, seeing people, encouraging people, making people feel seen and heard, I mean, that's really what service is all about. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, I, absolutely. I think, you know, people talk about the, the thought that is the thought that counts. Of course, it's not. It's the effort that counts and the effort we make for others and the way we we think about them to to give them to delight them, to make them feel great, to make them, to warm them to what we're doing and to hope that they want to do more of it. Where does struggle fit in? Because you talk about the gift of struggle. And is struggling a gift? Well, great question. So I'm going to take you forward one year from that moment Mm -hmm. that uh, I experienced on the bus. So a year after that experience, uh, I proudly raised my hand and I took the oath and I joined you know, what I proudly call the best branch of the military in the U.S., the Army. Uh-huh. And about three weeks into boot camp, that's right in that heart of that haze of that mental and physical breakdown that any soldier that joins the military will experience. And it was late one evening, about 11.30 p.m. at night, and I'm polishing my boots by flashlight. And all around me, I can hear the soldiers complaining about the night that had no end in sight and the morning that was going to start way too soon. And James, I remember vividly thinking as they were complaining, I'm like, wow, I've, I've been waking up in the wee hours to work in the fields ever since I was, you know, yay high. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like not to have any material comfort. I know what it's like to not have any free time. I'd even been asked to leave the table because of the color of my skin and the language I spoke at the time. And I remember specifically thinking like, 
maybe that was part of the plan. Because for the first time, I thought, you know what? There's nothing that they can say or do to me that I haven't somehow, some way experienced before. And I started reframing some of those hardships and those struggles and those experiences. And that's where, you know, uh, as I reflect on my journey and I look at some of those experiences, anytime I faced an obstacle, I could always draw from something that, that I experienced before that made me feel like I had self-doubt or I questioned myself. It was always a previous experience of struggle that gave me the energy to get through whatever obstacle I was facing. And I, I make, I connect a lot of those dots through the stories that I share in the book mm-hmm. yet, you know, that ultimately shaped my leadership philosophy. And, you know, to answer your question, what it really comes down to in my mind is that, you know, we all struggle inside. Every struggle is a gift mm-hmm. that teaches us something. Right. And leaders share those gifts with others. And it's a simple philosophy, yet it's a very true philosophy. I often say that, hey, we all have a PhD in struggle. <laughs> Are we tapping into those lessons and those gifts that those struggle have given us? You said you, your biggest leadership mistake was not talking about your story. What stopped you? Well, you know, my wife says my frontal lobe wasn't fully developed yet, which I think is partially <laughs> correct. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, you know, I think every entrepreneur, when they first start their journey, you're dodging arrows, you're facing so many unknowns. And, you know, I often call the first five years of Populous Group the most fun I never want to have again. Like, I just wanted to keep the lights on. Mm-hmm. And although I intuitively, uh, culture and you know, that purpose was burning inside of me. I was just trying to survive. And then as we experienced some fortunate growth in that second era, you know, I, I was telling myself the wrong narrative. And the narrative that I was saying is that, you know what, this is important to me. It's not important to them. They don't need to hear it. You know, what if I fall flat on my face? You know, and I mean, this moment was the experience that exposed my biggest point of self-doubt. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, I didn't realize at that point just how powerful and critical uh, the competency of you know, being authentic and vulnerable with your people really is. And you know, I finally uh, mustered up the courage. And I, I talk about how I did it. Uh, it wasn't... You know, I didn't just one day wake up and say, yeah, I'm going to tell that story. Mm-hmm. It actually happened accidentally while I was working on a project. Uh-huh. And I just shared the story with, uh, you know, with a, a gentleman that was helping me work on a project where we were going to codify our culture and our culture code. But when I told him that story, I felt like this giant weight had been just removed from my, my shoulders. Mm-hmm. And a few weeks later, my company heard the story and it changed everything. It humanized me. And they were finally able to understand that intensity that they knew was there. And they knew I had this real intense driven passion to succeed, but they didn't know why. Yeah. And you know, I believe as a leader, one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to give our people meaning. In other words, it's our responsibility to give those that we lead contribution. 
give them something to contribute to. And I hadn't done that. Right. It's interesting, you know, I speak to so many people on this podcast, you know, across the last couple of seasons, and um, so many talk about their, you know, everyone has a story, and they talk about their stories. And so the common theme is that when they started to discuss that with the people they worked with, with the people that worked with them, a whole world of change happened. And that authenticity, that, that vulnerability, I guess, made them very human and and it not only did it change the relationship in the business and with the people in their business, but it inspired. And one of the greatest talents of a, of a leader is surely to inspire those around you to to follow the journey and to come along to toward the vision. Um, so it's it's really fantastic that, I, that when you when you mention that you think, oh great. Um, how can we get people to do that? How can we get leaders to to think inside themselves and to bring that vulnerability out? What could what could people listening today think about and do to change that narrative? Well, you know, that's actually part of my mission. Is I, you know, I want to reframe how the world views struggle. You know, I want them to see it as a source of empowerment, as a gift that it really is, and as I was fortunate to do. And that's the primary reason why. The first lesson is tell your story. And uh, I believe that it has to be a choice. You know, people, uh, we're wired in a way that, you know, we don't like to be told what to do. And, you know, I'm going to keep telling my story to, you know, be an example and, you know, share the good, bad, and the ugly of, you know, how it helped me. And, you know, the more I think people out there who have made a similar mistake or experience a similar struggle, the more safety we create for others to do the same, mm-hmm. I think they'll make the choice. You know, in business, I, I believe that's one of the biggest trends in business now is um, leaders wanting to build a more purpose-driven organization. And the reality is, is that's what the younger workforce generations are teaching us. So, you know, a lot of people complain about the millennials and all these other generations. And I'm like, mm-hmm. you know what? They're actually teaching us to lead with more purpose, more intentionality, to communicate differently, communicate better. I tend to focus more on what they're challenging and encouraging those of us that get the opportunity to lead to do mm-hmm. better. But that new generation, because you, your your background is, as you, you say, it's not an uncommon story. Um, you know, migrant background, a hardworking family. Um but we certainly would hope that you know the next generation and the generation on have easier and easier lives. So does that gift of struggle disappear? I, I guess your kids won't feel or know the same hardship that you felt as a child. You know, I, I hope they don't. Yet I want to teach them the same lessons. You know, we were talking offline. Mm. Uh, you know, I moved to a farm so they could learn how to work in the dirt, play in the <laughs> yeah, dirt. And, yeah. You know, I'm going to manufacture it. But you know, the reality is, is you know, as a good friend of mine. Uh, who had a very fortunate upbringing says, you know, they're going to be born on third base and they didn't hit a triple. So <laughs> I want to make sure that they, uh, that they understand some of these lessons. And I'm doing that by the storytelling, but here's, uh, he, he, here, here's what I really want to, uh, you know, comment about that. James is that, you know, there's a technical definition of struggle mm-hmm. and that is, you know, uh, you know, to, to strive or achieve something in the face of difficulty or resistance. And sure, that's true. We're going to face obstacles, exterior obstacles. And, you know, struggle 
the way I view it, it's actually the pain that we feel inside. You know, we often have self-doubt. We feel like we're the only one. We feel like um, you know, that there's only one person ourself that is experiencing this frustration or source of pain mm-hmm. right now. And that's just not true. And through storytelling and sharing some of these stories, uh, I've received some heartwarming, life-changing letters from great people across the world that, you know, they're thanking me for simply just sharing the stories that I shared in the book. And, you know, I wrote it to give. And one of the part of that giving is to create that safety for other people to talk openly about it. And I think there's a big gap out there right now for leaders to, you know, finally step up and admit that they don't all have their stuff together. <laughs> well, yeah, you, as you talk about the reframing part, I just want to come back to that in a moment. But, you know, that ability, to, that, there's, there's a resilience or is it just a bloody mindedness that kept you going? And then how did you, when you said you reframed it, was there something that clicked? Was there a pivoting moment that made you think, I, I have to look at this differently? Well, that, that moment that uh, I highlighted at, at basic training at boot camp when I was polishing mm-hmm. my boots at night, that was the first vivid experience. Yet, mm-hmm. as I continued into my professional journey and then my entrepreneurial journey, uh, every time that I faced an obstacle, and there were many and there's countless, and you know the book is laced with mistakes and frustrations that, that I had and then mistakes that I made. And I often tell people that you know, although I have been very fortunate and intentional about reframing my struggle, I don't openly go out and invite it into my life. Like you have to be crazy to want to struggle, mm-hmm. but you have to be crazier to think that it's not going to happen. So just shifting our mindset a little bit. And you know, often when I guide leaders or coach others, I, I have them go back to the beginning. I'm like, Write down a list of those marker moments in your life where you faced a significant struggle. And it's usually pretty, pretty easy for someone to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I'll have them draw a line and then I'll ask them, okay, on the other side, when you reflect on that, what did it teach you? How did it make you better? And you'll see people write things like, well, hey, it taught me compassion. It taught me to be kind. It taught me to never give up. It taught me to go off the beaten path. It taught me to, you know, ask for help. And those are the things that get us through those moments when we, you know, feel like we're alone and we feel like the weight of the world's on our shoulders. But you have to work at it. You absolutely have to work at it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Bobby, I read a lovely quote from you which said, leadership amounts to wanting more for people than what we want from them. That's right. Um, and I think I, if, if anything could sum up what you've been telling me, I think that that's, that's absolutely wonderful. I've loved chatting with you, um, and I, I'm pretty sure I could go, go on for the rest of the evening. But could you leave our listeners with your one big thing, one one idea, one golden nugget, something that they can do for themselves and for their businesses to be better for today and better for the years to come? What would that be? Well, I'd ask them to consider the just the unvarnished truth of 
this next statement in that we must all go through struggle, pain, and suffering to get to wisdom. And I often say that, you know, the long way is a shortcut. And if we really take a step back and do that deep excavation that we just briefly talked about and going back to the beginning and writing down some of those significant, often painful moments, I believe they would recognize that, wow, I do have a PhD in struggle. Maybe this was part of the plan. Bobby, thank you so, so much. It's been lovely chatting with you. God bless you, James. And uh, that pints on me next time you're in Portland. I'll have the underdogs. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep, uh, I will hold you to that. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Bobby. I hope you really enjoyed this episode of the Only One Business Show. And I look forward to sharing your company again very soon. If you'd like to subscribe, please do so wherever you pick up your podcasts. And in the meantime, have a great day. Bye for now.